Yes, this is the non-microwave truth, and I am C.L. Whiteside. First world problem today. What's the purpose of a godparent? I don't know how I've been talking about this, but I feel like I've had a lot of conversations with people lately about like, what's the purpose of a godparent? Do you have a godparent? Do you wish you had godparents if you don't? Like, what do you think is the actual role of a godparent or godparents? I have two godchildren. Shout out to Gia and Naomi. Those are my goddaughters' names. But, you know, if you look in the Bible, I don't see anything about you need to have a godparent. I think that godparents were created to have a set of people there to enforce godly principles and a godly way of life among someone in case something happened to the parents. But in today's world, in today's society, it's sometimes like uh, another uncle, another aunt. And I say that because I know people who have godparents and their godparent might not even believe in God, but like they they are a super cool woman or a super cool man. So they're like, you know what? I want you to be my child's godmama or goddaddy. But what do you think about that? My wife and I got to questioning and asking different groups of friends and different people and just getting their, their idea. And one of the things that came up is like, you know what? Godparents is something that should be discussed a lot more. Like, what are the expectations that you have for someone being your child or being your godfather or godmother? Like, what are you actually looking for? Because I don't think sometimes we necessarily talk about that. Because the answers range from you have some people who are like, all right, if you are the godparent, if I die, I'm expecting you to take care of my children. Then I have some people who are like, you know, I just want another God fearing person to help with raising my child, to help be a positive example in my child's life. Then we have some who like, I just think really highly of you. I think you cool. So would you be my God father or my God mother to my child? But, but what do you think in today's society, in today's age, what does the average person think about a godparent and what do you think are their expectations? And, you know, I've been single a lot more than I've been married. That's for sure. So if I already had a, a godchild, does that mean my wife is automatically the godmom? Like, how does that work when you're single and all of a sudden you get a spouse? Or, you know, sometimes you're in a relationship and you're like, oh, this could be the one. And they're like, I want y'all to be the God mama and the God daddy, but y'all not even married. And then y'all break up or something like, is it, does it still work then? Like, what are the expectations? What do you think are the expectations for a God parent today? The average person. Do you know your expectations? And I say all this to say that I think the average person in today's world treats it like another aunt or another uncle. Like, I think you're real cool. I don't think they necessarily care about the whole God thing, but some definitely do. And this is our first world problem question day. What do you think the average person means when they say, hey, this is my Godfather or my Godmother or their expectations are? And do you even think it's necessary? I guess I should start off by asking that. Do you even think it's necessary for a person to have a Godmother or a Godfather? Or are you like, nah, that's, that's doing too much, man. And this is our first world problem. It is dinner time the title of our episode today is championship culture and this is one of those episodes where 
I'm going to really need you to, to challenge the way you're thinking and just be conscious of your mindset that you actually have. Because nothing in this episode is going to be like brand new. But it's something that we often overlook as Christians. Like we don't think about it enough. And it's stuff we take for granted consistently and continuously. And it's why we get in ruts. And it's why sometimes we're like, man, you know what? Life sucks. But I want you to think about this question right here. Are you a winner or are you a loser? Are you a winner or are you a loser? How would you answer that? And why would you answer the way that you answer? Man, people are in a position nowadays in our culture, in our society, where they're always trying to portray that they're winning. I mean, just look on social media, man. People don't like to post too many L's. And why would you? That doesn't get you as many likes. Like our culture, our society, we love winners. And if you are posting those L's, we do love those nothing to something stories. Like we love the microwave version of that person's life. But the person living that, living that life and taking all those L's, they can tell you it was anything but microwaved. Like they like, you don't understand the sweat, tears, the grind I had to go through to, to get to this point. But don't we like those stories? We don't like to go through that grind, but we love them stories. We do. But what does winning even look like to you? Like, how should we define earthly success? And what would you even call a win? Or what would you even call success? Is, is it status, money, um, the relationship status that a person has? Is it the career? Is it the job that they have? Is it the purpose that they seem to portray? Is it the accolades? Is it the fact that they help a whole bunch of people? Or is it the fact that others call them good or others deem that they have made it? Now, how would you answer this question? Are you in a championship culture right now? Like you personally, are you in a championship culture? And if some of you are like, how do you even define culture, CL? I would just say the way of life for you, like our way of life, our, our values, our attitudes. It's kind of like our own personal philosophies. They get shaped. They get shaped by what? They get shaped by who or what we surround ourselves with. The famous quote that plenty of people have heard from Jim Rohn is that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And more times than not, your culture you live by is what you're around most. So we're not just going to talk about people that we're around, but also things that we are around, because that shapes our, our thought process. That shapes our philosophies. That shapes all that other stuff I was just talking about. And I want you to think about this. Think about your top five people. Or I think we could say top five things we surround ourselves with. And again, why I said things is because like if you spend five hours a day on Instagram, those algorithms, those those shaping who you become. man. if you give your undivided attention to the television for hours a week, that that counts, too. Now, I'm going to give you my top five people or top five things that I'm surrounded with. And I want you to do this. And I did this for myself. Well, actually, I did six because I was like, I got to. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to tell you the six. The first one I said is like my school because I, I work at a school. So what I'm talking about is like the colleagues that I'm with, the fact that the routines that we have each and every day, like the fact that we have chapel, man, that's something that every single day we designate time to be with the word of God. I wouldn't be able to do that at a, at a public school. I wouldn't be able to do that in a lot of different other jobs. But that's a designated time for the entire population to get together and focus on God. That's different. That's unique. 
And just the fact that being at a school, my job, my responsibility is to create a culture and to keep the temperature of the culture of an entire school. But at the same time, something that keeps me a little bit on edge, I should say, is, man, some of the parents I just deal with, like, you have some of those parents sometimes who don't want to just say their little baby, their little son or daughter was wrong. Like, they just don't want to take ownership. They rather try to manipulate a situation and paint you to be a bad guy. And it's like, this is not that serious. I really don't care. This is not personal. This is just a policy. This is just what we have in place. Like, take your consequence and keep it moving. Don't start trying to paint this picture of me being a bad guy or out to get your kid. It's really not that serious. I'm just trying to do what's right. But man, some people, some parents, I should say, almost make you want to go off on them. But you don't do it. You just don't do it. You keep it professional, baby. So yeah, top five. First one would be school colleagues, people I deal with every day, students. Most of them are awesome. Most of the parents are awesome. Had two awesome parents come in today. Just, just beautiful people. Like, just wanted their daughter to be the best they possibly could and love being in the Christian school. Like, that's what I'm talking about. Those are the people I love to deal with. The other ones, sometimes I'd be like, man, you can, yeah, you sent by the devil. But, um, all right, number two, I would say coaches. Coaches, we spend a lot of time together, whether it's talking in a group chat about getting players in different positions from meetings to, you know, off-season hours to we kick it because we enjoy being around each other. But, yeah, those those are definitely a part of um, influencing who I am and what I see and who I become. The third one I had on my list was my wife. Man, that happy wife, happy life, that's for real. That should be in the good book. I mean, it is somewhere kind of like paraphrased, but yeah, that's real. I'm speeding it up a little bit now. Like the number four one, I would put like sermons or the Bible or like actually researching for this, for the podcast, doing the podcast. Cause that's a lot of alone time that I have. And I think that's one of the most overlooked things for us people at times is our alone time. Like, how do you spend your alone time, your time by yourself? Because I know some of us, we have a lot of negative self-talk and you're hanging out with yourself and it's not good. Or you're hanging out and you're on your phone and you're, you're checking social media. Or even the opposite of self-talk is we're trying to build ourselves up in a prideful way. Like, I'm better than you. I'm better than him. I'm better than this person. And that's that's like the social media effect. Uh, the fifth one that I have, my brother, he sends me a lot of different stuff. We have a lot of real conversations, a lot of different ways that he challenges me, sends me different sermons, sends me different thoughts, different philosophies, um, challenges me with my different duties, I should say. So, yeah, that's one of the people. And the last one, this is number six, because remember, I said I did six because I had to just tell you Twitter. Man, Twitter is a whole nother culture, man. Like, I don't know if you want to call it good or bad. It, it's both. But sometimes it just takes up too much time when I'm looking at like I can get in a rabbit hole of like this, looking at a post. And then you start scrolling down and looking at the people who posted under. And it's like, man, tw Twitter is a whole nother beast, man. People on there are crazy. Some of them are really funny. Some of the stuff is just so bizarre. And do you ever find yourself like in, in rabbit holes where you're enamored by watching videos or seeing a discussion? Or looking at conspiracy theories or you see the best and the worst of something. And I know some of y'all, y'all probably do some stalking and some creeping. Y'all are some fake PIs. And I know you out there. I know some of you are some fake PIs. But yeah, that was my top six. I asked you to do top five. So you could even pause this right now. Go ahead. Write your top five ways that you think that you are being influenced from a person or from a thing. You can go ahead and pause it. Hit pause. Put your top five list real quick. The top five things or people 
that get your time and influence you. Now, some of you like they don't influence me like they do influence you. So that's why I said time, because some of you will lie about it. And be like it has no influence over me. It does. But now let's get into how do you build a championship culture? Because this is what this whole episode is about. Now, something we got to realize is as Christians, we should not be fighting to win because we've already won. I'm going to say that again. We don't we shouldn't be fighting to win. We don't need to win anymore. We've already won. Colossians 2, starting at verse 13. And you're like, well, how can you say that we already won? Because Jesus did it for us. Colossians 2, verse 13, it says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with what? With Christ. For he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it on the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory, by his victory, by his victory over them on the cross. The Lord made me a winner, so I got to win. Or I should say I already won. Now, in this episode of Championship Culture, it is all about building a championship culture from a mindset, from a spiritual sense. Sense. I know some of you are like, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Yes, you can. Stop it. As a Christian, you've already won. All right. I'm going to give you five ways to unleash or to build this championship culture by looking at the Bible, looking at the things that the people in the Bible did to have that championship culture, to have that mindset. Like, man, you know what? I won and actually live like a winner would. The first one is to choose positivity. I know that's one of those cliche phrases. Just choose to be positive. No, but but seriously, choose to be positive. Like you have a choice on how you respond to things in life. Like I won't lie, certain situations, certain circumstances, it sucks. But you still have a choice on how you respond to that. Looking at 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16 through 18, it says rejoice always. <laughs> Say that again. Rejoice always. Pray continually. And when I read that, like, pray continually, I was thinking about, like, how are you supposed to pray all day? And I just started thinking about, like, having your hands folded and your eyes closed and you drop down on your knees real quick to pray to the Lord. Like, that's that's not really what it's talking about. It's more so like, man, how much is your communication just like, you know what, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? I wonder what God is thinking right here. God, give me the guidance. God, give me the strength. God, give me this. God, give me that. It's constantly just being in communication with him, having that dialogue with him. You can say it out loud. You might look a little crazy if you walk in the street, but you also can just do it in your head and have a conversation with God like nonstop. It goes on to say, give thanks in all circumstances, in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Circumstances change all the time, but God doesn't. That's the reason we can be rejoicing. And that right there is a reason to rejoice. It's not like we're going to do something that's so bad or so crazy where God is like, you know what? I don't love you anymore. You know what? I died on the cross. I take it back. I take it back. It's like, nope, it's done. It's paid for. It's, that's, that's the reason to rejoice. And this brings us into our second point, which is very close to choosing positivity, is to promote and spread positivity. And I just thought about Paul. Paul was a person who knew all about choosing joy. Dude was writing from prison. And you wouldn't even know. He was so encouraging. He was so, so loving and so kind in letters. You'd be like, man, Paul must be living that life. He must be on a beach. He must be on a resort. He must be eating good. But no, he was in prison 
he was in prison, still singing hymns, still being super positive, still encouraging people. And in so many of his letters, there was so much encouragement. There was so much positivity that he was choosing to spread. And that's a huge thing that we can do when we had that championship culture mindset. The third thing is, and the third thing about creating a championship culture is that you don't see a challenge or an obstacle as a bad thing. Like you look at that and it's like, okay, okay. James 1 verse 2 tells us, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But how many of us are like, God, take this trial away from me. I can't do it no more. I'm tired. I just can't do it no more. I'm sick of this. We throw little tantrums and pity parties for ourselves. Or am I the only one that does this? And the only way that you can see those trials, those things as those challenges or obstacles, the only way you can not see them as a bad thing is you got to have a Romans 8 verse 28 mentality. And that's And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. When you are in some mess, you have to keep telling yourself this passage. And it would be great to even say it out loud. Like, man, I know God working for the good of me, man. I don't know what's going on, but I know God is working for the good of me. I love him. He's got me. I know this is according to his purpose. I don't know what he's trying to teach me, but I'm going to stay the course. I will stay the course. And the fourth thing to creating a championship culture is to have standards and commitments and you stick to them. Now, these standards and commitments have to be biblically based. Proverbs 16 tells us, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Like none of these excuses. Losers call them reasons. Like I said, I was going to stop drinking, but hey, it's free booze. You know what, man? I said I wasn't going to hit anymore. But dog, she throwing it at me. I said I wasn't going to cut somebody out, but they just crossed that line. So I got to let them know. God gives us a very clear standard in, in his word. But of course, you need to be in his word to know what those standards are. And then the spirit leads us to make commitments. Now, you got to realize the difference between a commitment and a goal. A commitment is something that you have 100 percent control over. And that is what builds a championship culture. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24 tells, it says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you win. You know how you win? You honor your commitments because everybody will run. Like I've never seen an athlete when we get in the game that didn't want to win. Like they all want to win. But the difference is not all of them had the same commitment level before the game. Not all of them have the same commitment in the unseen hours. And the last thing, the fifth thing on our list to adapting that championship culture, to owning that championship culture as Christian, is the vision that we have. We have to see and know and constantly just envision ourselves being winners. And I said that kind of weird though, because it's like you don't have to create this vision out of nothing. You just have to remember and envision the victory that God has already given you. God has already won for you. God has already battled for you. Like it's there. You can claim the victory. And Jeremiah 29 verse 11 tells us, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you 
and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And it's all about that, that hope in our future. Our hope in our future and knowing that, man, you are a, a champion. You are a winner. Like it's already done. We are playing with house money. And I can't lie. Sometimes I just, I forget that God thinks about me. He thinks about each one of us individually. He thinks about each and every single detail. And he's already mapped out the victory. So despite the situation or the, or the circumstance or the earthly culture that I happen to be in, I won and you won. And we should probably stop responding like we lost. Because when Jesus went and fought the battle for us and he popped out the tomb, we won and this is the non-microwave truth so start creating that championship culture not just for yourself but for everyone around you peace punch captain crunch say no to drugs and yes to jesus i'm out